Good morning. Well, this day marks the first day, the beginning of a new study at Calvary, and we're going to be looking at the epistle known as 1 Corinthians. For those of you who don't know, an epistle just simply means a letter, and this letter was written by the Holy Spirit to the church in the city of Corinth through the Apostle Paul. So Paul penned the words, but he was moved or directed by the Holy Spirit what to write. When we come to the study of 1 Corinthians, we are in a sense jumping into the middle of a story. And uh, that's not usually the way I like to read books. My tendency is to read the first paragraph of a book and then read the very end of the book because I kind of like to know where the author is going. Sometimes I ruin the entire story by doing that, but that's generally the way I like to do it. Then I can fill in the middle afterwards. But uh, today, I I don't want to just jump right into 1 Corinthians, so I think it's appropriate for the initial message at least to uh, start at the beginning of the story and then introduce you to the church at Corinth, and then in the weeks to come, uh, we'll open up the book of 1 Corinthians, other brothers will teach from it, and we'll, we'll look to see what the Lord has to teach us as well. So, the beginning. The beginning of any story, any human story, really begins with God, and that's where we're going to start today, in the beginning God. So that's first verse of the Bible, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That's not where we're going to start. But every story, every human story begins with God. And I want to say to you this morning that if you don't yet know God, if you don't yet know Him as your Lord and your Savior, God has a plan for your life. And It is by no coincidence or no accident that you are here this morning. It is God's purpose and God's plan to reach out to you and to save you. That is God's plan. God's plan, His purpose, His desire in life is to save you. He created you. He loves you. And it says in the scripture of those who are already believers that He chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. So before the beginning of the world, God existed, and he saw the future, which included you, and he saw that, he, that you would live and that he would do everything in his power, everything that was necessary to save your soul to bring you to himself because he loves you. That's that's the truth of the scripture. And really that is the message of the gospel. It is the good news that we proclaim that, that God loves you and that he has done everything necessary to bring you to himself. The most famous verse of the Bible says that. It says, For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's God's goal for every human being on the face of the earth. God's love was demonstrated to you and to me by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to the cross. And on the cross, Jesus paid your sin's debt. You sinned, you did all the sinning, Every sin you committed was against God. It was a crime against God. And for your crimes against God, Jesus took your punishment so that you could be set free, forgiven, cleansed, made righteous, and have a relationship with God. He did this so that you would not perish in your sins. He did this so you would not spend eternity in hell. But God so loved you that he provided the only way of escape. And so deliverance and salvation comes 
by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. And that's the good news, and I'm going to keep talking about the good news all morning long. I'm going to keep saying it, good news, good news, good news. People, we have good news, and we need to share the good news. We call it sometimes the gospel, and the gospel simply means good news. So I'll I'll say it probably interchangeably, but it's good news. And the good news today is this, that you can have your sins forgiven and have a right relationship with God, be on your way to heaven, um, delivered from hell, and there's only one way that that can take place, and that is by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, God loves you so much, and he loves the world so much, that he has designed a plan where everyone in the world should hear the good news and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's his desire, that that good news be spread as far as to the ends of the earth so that everyone, because the invitation is open to everyone, there's no one excluded, that everyone might come to him. God wants the good news to be told to every living person. When Jesus died on the cross, he was buried, and on the third day he rose again from the grave. And sometime after that, he appeared to his disciples as evidence that he was truly alive, that he had risen from the dead. At one time, he appeared before a crowd of 500 witnesses, and uh, people say, oh, Jesus didn't rise from the dead. It's, it's pretty hard to have mass hallucination of 500 people at one time, okay? 500 people at one time saw Jesus risen from the dead, and the evidence of his resurrection is overwhelming. It's one of the most attested events in all of history. His resurrection is the first fruits, the scripture says, of our resurrection. If we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, even if we die physically, we will be raised from the dead to live with him for all eternity. We will be alive forever with him. And his resurrection assures that. God wants the world to know that there is one who can deliver us from hell. His name is Jesus. That is the good news that we proclaim. So when Jesus was uh, at the end of his earthly ministry, he had risen from the dead. Some uh, 40 days later, he ascended in front of his disciples. He gathered them together and he ascended into heaven. But before he went back to heaven and left them with the job of proclaiming this good news, this is what he said. Let's take a look at Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so this proclamation began with the early disciples. And he says very clearly in this statement that we are to go into all the world and preach the gospel and that he would be with us to the end of the age. And brothers and sisters, I believe we are in the end of the age. But he's still with us. He's still Um, helping us, and he's there to encourage us and strengthen us. We call this the Great Commission. And the Great Commission demonstrates something very profound in my mind. And that is, it, it demonstrates God's love for you. So in this proclamation, in this Great Commission, God was thinking, Jesus Christ was thinking about Howard Ormsby. He was thinking about Sharon Robertson. He was thinking about uh, Johnny O and Megan and so on. All of you individually, he was thinking about. You say, well, I didn't exist yet. No, you didn't. But in his mind, you did. 
He knew the day of your birth. He knew the days he would give you to live. And he knew that he would pursue you until the day you die to trust him as Savior and Lord. Because he longs for you to escape from hell and to be delivered to him in heaven. And to be with him for all eternity. And to enjoy his presence forever. The Great Commission that the the good news might be preached throughout the entire world. So in Acts chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, we read this. And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or season which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of of the earth. Now I want you to look at the last phrase there. You shall be witnesses to me. And we're going to break it down into four parts, into, well, three parts really. Um, witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, those regions, and to the end of the earth. And so we want to take a look at th- this is the command. And he's commanding his disciples to do this. Go out and spread the good news to the entire world. Let's see how they did. Okay? If at any any point along the way they stopped, if at any point along the way they said, you know what, this is too hard for us. If at any point along the way they said, you know what, I just don't feel like it. It's doubtful that you and I would be sitting here or standing here this morning. Had they not proclaimed the good news, where would you be today? Where would I be today? It was not long after this great commission that Peter, one of the apostles, one of the disciples of Jesus Christ, stood up in a crowd in Jerusalem and proclaimed the good news of salvation to the Jews. He was in what city? Jerusalem. So put the, put the uh, verse back up there again, Luke. No, yeah. You shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem. Okay, check. He preached in Jerusalem. When he preached the good news that day, 3,000 people came to know Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. 3,000 people escaped hell that day. 3,000 people had their sins forgiven and entered into a right relationship with Jesus Christ. And what did they do to earn it? Absolutely nothing. They simply believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and he saved them. Wow, 3,000, that's that's quite a number. Well, not long after this, Peter and John preached the good news again. They again were in the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. They're still stuck there. They haven't gone beyond there. They're in Jerusalem. They preach again. There's a bigger crowd. And this time, 5,000 people come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. In one day. That's amazing. There are now 8,000 people who have been converted out of darkness into light. They have been taken from captivity of Satan and have been brought into the family of God. They are now in the family of God. They are his children. And this is the evidence of God's great care for the people in Jerusalem, the Jews who had for so long um, held on to the scripture and yet had not believed. Here were 8,000 people who had believed the gospel. Wonderful, wonderful story in the first part of the book of Acts. So the disciples spread the good news and they kept spreading it In Jerusalem, what's the problem with this? God loves the world, the Bible says. For God so loved the world, not just Jerusalem. And the world did not revolve around Jerusalem, although many of them thought it did. For God so loved the world. And so we have to get out of Jerusalem. And so the next part of it is in Judea and Samaria. There was a man named Stephen 
who was proclaiming the good news, and some Jews did not want to hear it. And they were so convicted of their sin when he preached that instead of repenting and instead of believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and having their sins forgiven and entering into a right relationship with God, they instead took up stones and they killed him. Stephen was the first martyr of the church. And they killed him. He was telling them of God's love for them, telling them how they could have their sins forgiven. He was telling them how they could enter into a right relationship with God. He was telling them, God loves you. And all they could show to him was their hatred. And in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, we read this. Now Saul was consenting to his death, that's Stephen's death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church which was at Jerusalem. And so the Spirit of God is telling us the church is still in Jerusalem. Now, I'm sure it's grown to beyond 8,000 people at this point, but that's where it is. That's the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of, let me see, on the Judea and Samaria. Interesting. That's what it says, Judea and Samaria. The very thing that Jesus told them to do. Preach in Jerusalem, spread the good news to Judea and Samaria. They didn't do that. And so now the church has experienced the first martyr. And as a result, people are emboldened to persecute the church. And so as the church is being persecuted in Jerusalem, many of the people in the church say, we're out of here. We're going to move to the sticks. Samaria, Judea, outside of the town, outside of the city. And so as they go, it's interesting, the Bible tells us, therefore those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. That's what they were supposed to do. And so there was a mass exodus of believers, and they had to flee for their lives because of persecution. Local congregations dwindled in size as believers scattered to the regions of Judea and Samaria. Now, I'll say this. No one likes persecution. Nobody. No one chooses to go through a trial. I don't wake up one morning and go, you know what? I'd like to have a trial today. I think I'm going to go out and and find someone to persecute me. Nobody likes that. Nobody wants that. Nobody wants a trial. No one wants to endure suffering. But the Lord, in his mercy and his grace to the world, allowed his people in the church to suffer. That was so the people of the world. That was so that you and I might ultimately hear the gospel. Had he not allowed the persecution the church would have remained and probably died in Jerusalem. But God, in his infinite wisdom, allowed persecution to come to the church, and they scattered to the very regions that he told them to go to. And the gospel was gossiped to Samaria and to Judea, the regions um, north of Jerusalem. The good news would reach the rest of the world yet. And so that you and I might ultimately hear that we can be saved, we can have our sins forgiven, we can know God, this had to happen to the church. It is because the Lord so loves the world that he allowed the persecution to his church so that others might be saved. And as the persecution grew, so did the number of people who trusted in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. So now the regions of Judea and Samaria heard the gospel. But you know something? This took 14 years for this to happen. We read the scripture and we go, oh, this is just Acts 8. That must be like eight days later, 14 years later. So 14 years. And finally, um, they reach out to these areas. Soon, the first Gentile convert came when Philip 
led the Ethiopian eunuch to the Lord, and so the good news spread to the continent of Africa. At least one person. One person heard. So that's not quite the ends of the earth, but I mean, we're, we're moving in the right direction. The Lord established his church. So as we... Um, Luke, can you put up the map of um, the Middle East there, or at least the section we're looking at? All right, let me see if I can uh, show you. Here's Jerusalem right over here where my light is. They moved up through this area here, and finally a lot of people sort of settled in this area in in a town called Antioch. And Antioch... um, was it was a town where the church grew. It was a church that ultimately had a mission. And that church, the church's mission was the Great Commission. And as this church was growing, another event took place. And uh, there's no thing on here that shows me where... Let me see here. Oops, sorry. Somewhere around here, we're going to call it, okay? There's a little town called Joppa. And Peter had moved to Joppa on the coast. And while he was in Joppa, he had a vision one night of uh, um, ultimately the Lord was telling him in this vision that the gospel was to be preached to the Gentiles. That was very hard for the Jews to understand, that God would love the Gentiles. But the Bible says, and Jesus said himself, for God so loved the world And of course, it's easy for a Jew to look at a verse like that and go, yeah, well, the world of the Jews. But it's the world of people, which includes the Gentiles. Peter listened to the vision that the Lord had given him. And there was a man who was a centurion, a Gentile centurion who came to Peter. And he was gloriously saved that day. And Peter really unlocked the door, as it were, to the gospel going out to the Gentiles so that you and I might receive the Lord Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior as well. The gospel was now to go out to the uttermost part of the earth. Well, many more years passed and the church continued to grow. And the one church that the Bible focuses on in the book of Acts is the church at Antioch. And it had explosive growth in that area. The church was predominantly made up of Gentiles who trusted the Lord. And as the the Spirit of God focuses our attention on that church, it's clear that God moves in the heart of the leaders of the church as they begin to think about how the gospel came to them, and then they look at where they're located, and they say, you know what? The good news has to be proclaimed to the ends of the earth. Where are the ends of the earth? Well, to them, these areas included the ends of the earth. Of course, North America hadn't been discovered yet. And there was probably very few people living here. South America, probably about the same. But to them, that would be the ends of the earth over there somewhere. And they believed that God led them to uh, select a couple of people to go out as missionaries, the first missionaries that ever went out, to proclaim the good news. And they would be sent out by this church to spread the good news to the ends of the earth. And so the leaders prayed to the Lord, and the Lord led them to lay hands on Paul and Barnabas, and they took with them John Mark, to go out on on what we call their first missionary journey. And uh, they went out in the first missionary journey. Uh, This map shows the second journey. Their first missionary journey basically was in this general area in here. And uh, as they went out, they traveled over a two-year period. They traveled 1,400 miles by foot. So you say, well, 1,400 divided by, you know, 700 and some odd days. It's not that much, you know, walking. But you have to remember something. There was no Motel 6 along the way. Okay? Paul was a tent maker, which seems to me to be a good trade to be in if you're going to be out, you know, tenting all the time. He would know how to fix it, repair it, make it right again if it began to leak. 
uh, there was no Safeway along the way. Now, there were markets for sure. I mean, there were, there were people who sold fruits and vegetables along the way. But remember, two years includes not only the summer fruit, but it includes fall and winter where there is very little uh, fruit available for sale. I know it's the Mediterranean, but we're in a Mediterranean climate too. And we don't have fruit that really grows here all year long. Okay? I mean, some of it does, but not, not everything does. So there's a limited food supply. There's a limited, limited markets. There's no hotels to, to check into. There's no four-wheel drive to get from one place to another. They're walking, they're hoofing it by foot, and they're doing this day by day, which means, Daniel, you just came back from like a month away or something like that, and you were hiking through the Sierra Mountains. But I mean, think about this, where there is no map, at least not much of one, and uh, there is no GPS, there's no cell phone covered and say, hey, Dad, you know, can you help me out here? I'm lost, which you didn't do, thankfully. Um, but you can imagine, put yourself in his sandals for a minute, okay? Think about what it would take to go out and do something like this, where you're walking from place to place. You don't know anybody. You're preaching the good news, hoping that people will trust in the Lord and then receive you, but you don't know that's going to happen. And so as they went out, they went out for two years, 1,400 miles. It was tough. And Paul talks about this later in Corinthians, and he says that we had terrors or uh, trials along the way. He doesn't describe what they were, but he talks about trials of his own countrymen, trials of um, beasts, basically animals that were wild animals they had to deal with. He had trials in probably heat and in cold, um, you know, all along the way. Winter, summer, spring, fall, the whole bit. He faced it all for two years. Tough, tough going. As a result of the gospel going out, so the second mission, so they came back after two years. They stayed in Antioch for another two-year period, and as a, as a uh, result, um, they went out on a second missionary journey. But um, we want to see how this applies to 1 Corinthians, because that's the book we're studying. So let's talk about the first missionary journey for just a second. The year was about 48 AD. 17 or 18 years had passed since the Lord ascended into heaven. Finally, the gospel was going to be taken to the end of the earth. And Paul and Barnabas set out on the first missionary journey. And many people came to know the Lord. There were churches established everywhere they went. And people readily received the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when they came back to Antioch, they stayed there, they taught, they encouraged the saints. Um, but that burden of reaching the lost, that burden of reaching the ends of the earth, never left Paul, never left Barnabas. They still had that in their desire that, look, we've covered some territory, 1,400 miles but it's a big world out there. There are lots and lots of people to still reach who haven't heard the good news of Jesus Christ. And so Paul later wrote in 1 Corinthians, and this is kind of an insight into his heart, where he thinks about reaching more people, going out again on a second journey, going out even further than he did on the first one. And he says in his writing, Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. That's the burden that is in his heart. He so longs to get this message out because he knows that God loves the world and wants to save those who will trust in him. So Paul and Barnabas went out again, but they went out separately. Uh, this time, the second missionary journey, Paul um, went out with um, Silas, and then others joined him along the way. What motivated Paul to, to go out and to preach the gospel? What motivated him to endure suffering yet again? Because he came back having suffered. He knew that if he was to go out again, he was going to suffer. Now, if you were to come to me, and I, and I, I hope I would be sensitive to the Lord's direction, but if uh, you went out 
and for two years you suffered and endured hardship and so on, and, and it was um, a lot of suffering. You said, you know, I, I really think the Lord wants me to go again and to preach the gospel. I would really have to think long and hard about that. Say, do you really want to suffer again? Do you really want to face that again? And here's what Paul's answer would be. For the love of Christ constrains me. What does that mean, for the love of Christ? His love for Christ that constrains him or compels him? No. I mean, he loved Christ, no question. But that's not what it means. It's that Christ loved him. For the love of Christ, that Christ loved me so much that he saved me. You remember Paul was previously named Saul. He was the one standing by when um, Stephen was martyred. He was the one who was breathing threats and had papers in his hand. He was on his way to destroy the church in Jerusalem. And God saved him. And Paul recognized that if God loved him so much that he would save him, he needed to tell others about this great love that Jesus Christ has for the world. And so Paul says, it is the love of Christ, the love that Christ has shown me, that's what compels me to tell you that Christ loves you. And so he went out a second time. The year is now 50 AD. Paul has a desire, first of all, to go back and visit the churches he and Barnabas planted, encourage the saints and strengthen them. This time, Paul goes out for two years. But now he goes out and covers 2,800 miles, twice as much. Same time frame. Except, we are going to learn that Paul stayed for one and a half years in Corinth, one place. So he covered 2,800 miles, really, in six months. Okay, I mean, with a stop, obviously, in Corinth for a year and a half. But that's a lot of uh, territory to cover. So imagine yourself, uh, I think that averages about, what, 15 miles a day? How many of you would like to walk 15 miles a day? Not many of us. I have this little uh, thing on my phone, it's an app, that tells me whether I've accomplished my goal for the day of walking. I think it's like, I don't know, five miles or something like that. And it keeps reminding me, you lazy bum, it, it doesn't say it that way, but it almost does. Hey, bud, you haven't met your goal. And I go, shut up. <laughs> and it never hears me. It never stops. Every day it's the same thing. And I'm thinking that's like five miles. It's nothing. Fifteen miles a day. That's a lot of land to cover. And he's got to haul with him whatever food supply he has, whatever water he needs to drink, whatever... Uh, tent he has, whatever clothes he has, whatever parchments he has, he's got to haul it all with him. That's, that's, it's tough. It's tough hoofing it. And that's what he did, 2,800 miles. Along the way, <clears throat> two people joined him, Timothy and Luke. So after visiting the churches he planted with Barnabas and encouraging the believers um, in these churches, Paul moved on to Derby and to uh, Lystra. So these towns are right here. This is the, kind of the beginning of his... Paul, by the way, was originally from Tarsus. But Derby, Lystra, he went up to Iconium, to another town called Antioch. And then as he moves forward, he gets into this general area right here. And he believes that God would have him take the good news to Asia. When we think of Asia, we think of China... Uh, the Philippines, Vietnam, and so on. That's not what we're talking about. This would be Asia here. Now, you may notice that there are, there are uh, cities named here, Smyrna, Ephesus, Colossae. These are churches that were actually established, but not now. Okay? So at the moment, the Holy Spirit of God forbids Paul from going here. And you say, does God not love the whole world? Does God not love Asia? Does God not love the people who are in the south? 
Yes, he does. But they're not ready. They're not ready to hear yet. And God knows that. Paul didn't. So he says, okay, well, if I don't go into Asia, then let me move up towards Mycia and head over into Bithynia. Because that's, that must be, if it's not south, it must be north where the Lord wants me to go. And so as he's moving up north to go into Bithynia, the Lord says, no, I don't want you going there either. And you say, okay, so if I can't go to my left and I can't go to my right, which way can I go? I'm not going back. So the only way is forward. And that's where he went. And so Paul finds himself going through Mycia to Troas. Troas is basically a port town. And while he's in, po uh, in Troas, he has a vision of a man standing in Macedonia, which is this whole area over here, a man from Macedonia who is pleading with him, come over here, come over here, tell us the good news. And Paul wakes up from the vision and he goes, hmm, I wonder what that means. <laughs> Pretty obvious, right? He said he, he took it from the Lord that the Lord wanted him to travel across the sea over to Macedonia. And that's what he does. And so at first he comes to the town, um, ultimately landed in uh, Philippi. It was the foremost city of Macedonia. And Paul stayed there for many days. He met a woman who was um, named Lydia. She heard the good news, trusted in the Lord. In his preaching of the good news, a young woman came along behind him, proclaiming him to be the, a man of God and that the message was right. But she was known for, being, for having a demon. Now, how many of you preaching the gospel want someone who is demon-possessed saying, listen to this guy? Say, you're my credible witness telling others to listen to me? No way. And so Paul did what he only could do, and that was he turned around and he cast out the demon. Now, this girl, she was a young girl, she was a slave, and her slave owners profited from her fortune-telling. The demon was able to speak uh, future events, probably falsely, but, but enough that people believed, and it was like a sideshow, a circus sideshow for the, for the owners. And they profited from her um, prophecies. Well, once she believed in the Lord, she no longer had, was filled with a demon. She was filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And the Holy Spirit of God was not going to allow her to lie anymore and tell false prophecies and be uh, a means of profit to these guys. And so she is now um, useless to them, and they're furious with Paul for having uh, broken their business. And so they take him to court, they have him uh, beaten and flogged and cast into prison, and here Paul and Silas are in prison in Philippi for having done nothing but share the good news. It was good news. This girl who was on her way to hell was saved and was now on her way to heaven. And all they could think about was the profit they lost from this girl. And Paul and Silas are in a dungeon in the inner part of a prison in Philippi, uh, chained in stocks and in bonds. And midnight comes and they are singing praise to the Lord. It's marvelous. It's a wonderful, wonderful story. Singing praises and hymns and praying to God. How do you handle opposition as a believer? When somebody says something against you or to you for telling them the good news. Why won't you listen to the good news? It's what will save your soul. And you're persecuted or you're opposed, how would you handle? How would you handle, or how would I handle, what happened to Paul and Silas? Would I find myself at midnight singing praises to the Lord? There's a song that uh, we often listen to. If you get a chance to, to uh, listen to it later, I played it for Angela the other day. It's called, God Wants to Hear You Sing. Um, I can't remember the quartet that sings it, but 
Look it up sometime. It's, it's a good song. So while they're singing praises to God, they're worshiping him at midnight in this prison. There's a massive earthquake so severe that the very foundation of the prison is shaking and, and quivering. And I don't, most of you weren't even alive at the time when we had the 1989 earthquake. How many are, were, were, were living during the 1989 earthquake? Okay, five of you. <laughs> no, there's a few more. But most of you don't remember. Some, the older ones do. It's the worst earthquake I remember ever feeling in, in uh, the, the Bay Area. And I remember distinctly where I was and what was happening and, and all the rest of it. But it's, it's a scary thing when the whole house is shaking and you go, when is this going to stop? Because I've been in other earthquakes where it was like, you go, that was an earthquake. But this one kept going. And I go, okay, okay. I, I actually had enough time to go into the bedroom where Luke was asleep in his crib. That's how long ago it was. And uh, get him out of the crib and get underneath uh, a doorway, not sure if that was going to help me much, and I can remember Rachel and, and uh, Sharon at the kitchen table, it was at supper time, and, and Rachel saying, who put the house on roller skates, you know? It, this was, uh, you know, the earthquake where, where parts of bridges collapsed, freeway collapsed, buildings, uh, portions of buildings collapsed, or some entirely did. This earthquake in Philippi was obviously a supernatural event. God wanted to get one man's attention, the Philippian jailer. And that man, when the earthquake struck and he saw that the foundation of that building was, was uh, shaking and that all of the prison doors opened and all of the chains fell off. That's why I say this is a supernatural event. An earthquake wouldn't cause chains to fall off. God did this caused all the prisoners to be free, and he realized that the Roman government would hold him accountable for the loss of all the prisoners. He said, I might as well take my own life, and he was about to take his own life, and Paul cried out from the prison and said, don't take your life. We are all here. We're all accounted for, and he stopped short of committing suicide, and he realized that God had just spared his life. Now he needed to get his soul in order. And he said to Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? And Paul and Silas were there to spread the good news. That's what they came for. They shared the gospel with him. He came to know the Lord. His house came to know the Lord, his household. And a church was established in his house in Philippi that very day. God spared him. What must I do to be saved? Wonderful question, and I want to ask you the same question today if you don't know Jesus Christ. That's the question you should be asking. What must I do to be saved? Well, there's nothing you can do to earn salvation, but here's the answer Paul gave. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved and your house. Believe on him. That's it. Salvation is free. It is freely available and if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, your sins can be forgiven today. You don't have to wait. He wants you to come to him now. Okay, they went off to Thessalonica next. Um, now remember, Paul was beaten and flogged. He had been imprisoned. He had chains around him. He was sore. Okay, even though the Philippian jailer put ointment on him and all the rest of it, he was, he was hurting Two weeks ago, I stepped off a curb, just, just this simply. I won't even do it because I might hurt it again. I stepped off a curb, put my foot down, and I tore my MCL in my, in my knee. Two weeks I've been suffering from this pain. I lie in bed at night and I go, okay, I'm, I'm very comfortable. I, I fall asleep and I make one move and I go, oh, I'm awake. <laughs> so Paul, I don't know what injuries he suffered, but it was a lot. And he was now bearing the burden of this pain with him as he went. Just to give you a perspective of what he's going through. He comes to Thessalonica. He gets there. He, again, shares the good news with, him, with them. And those who do not believe gather a mob together and oppose the missionaries and drive them out of town. It was clearly satanic opposition. But it was, it was uh, Satan trying to stop the message from going out. Paul then went on to Berea. 
And there the people of the town readily listened and believed the gospel. But the Jews from Thessalonica came down to Berea and stirred up the crowds there so that Paul had to go again. And he was, he was basically running from the opposition. Not that he was afraid of it, but he left um, Timothy and Silas in town to continue to uh, minister to the saints. But he himself went on now by himself. So now he's hurting. He's suffering. He's got the pain of the, uh, uh, of the injuries. He's got still carrying all of his gear, still walking. And he's now going on to the next town. He still now has to, to face any kind of dangers on the road of robbers or of wild animals or whatever there might be by himself. It's a frightening experience. And Paul plainly says that. He tells us that. So <clears throat> during this time, you have to realize that Paul had to have a means of support. And so the support that he had was his own tent making. So he would make tents along the way, and then he would sell them in the common market, in the, in the open market, for people to buy, as they would, uh, others would be traveling in the same way. That's how he earned his support. There was no bank account he was drawing from. He had no Visa card, no Amex, nothing. Okay? He had to earn cash as he went, and that's how he supported himself. He endured the unsettled condition of living out of a suitcase every night. I know something about that, the unsettled part. Okay? I don't consider it to be a, a burden like Paul did. Um, packing, moving each day. We go from hotel to hotel. We go from house to house. It's luxury compared to what he's going through. Uh, he's setting up tents finding food sources, suffering, sleeplessness, concerns about robbers, perils by land, perils by sea, dangers of animals lurking in the shadows, threats of arrest, beatings, imprisonment, constant weariness and toil, hunger and thirst in all sorts of weather conditions. His personal medical condition made him weak and apparently not very appealing to look at. When he preached the good news, he faced opposition and hostility, mocking and scorn. He was attacked verbally, physically, and spiritually by Satan's opposition. And so Paul came finally, we're going to fast forward, he finally came to a place called Corinth. Corinth is located on the western shore of the Isthmus of Corinth. Luke, do you have a map of that? So he had been in, he had come down this way here to Athens. From Athens, he went to Corinth. As he entered into Corinth, Corinth was an interesting town. It's actually more right on this, uh, right at the body of water here. It's a port city, wicked city. It's, uh, it was known, uh, people would say uh, to Corinthianize someone would mean to basically corrupt them. That's what it would mean. So, Corinth was strategically located because a lot of trade came through this way to Athens. So ships coming from this area here, instead of going all the way down and around, this is a 200-mile journey to come to Athens this way. Um, and this sea was known for its uh, treacherous uh, conditions. Many people, uh, in fact, it was, there was a statement that was made that any captain of a ship should make sure that his will was in order before making this journey. So in Corinth, they actually, there's a very uh, little bit of land through here. It's four miles across. And what they did is they set up poles along the um, body of, of land, and they would literally drag the boats out of the water and across the land to the other side. And uh, there had been back in um, Caesar's time, they said, why don't we just make a uh, channel through there? And they started it back then, and it wasn't actually finished, I think, until like 19, I mean, uh, eight, the 1880s or something like that. I forget the actual date. But uh, eventually, there is one now. You can actually look at it on a Google map, and you'll see there's water all the way through there. But at the time, there wasn't. And they did this by, by having, like I say, uh, logs as runners, and then 
they'd roll poles and the boat over top of the, the land and pull it over that way. It would save them all kinds of time and it would save them the danger of going around the south there. But as a result, Corinth became a very vibrant uh, political and commercial center and many of the sailors and that would, would spend time in Corinth and they were corrupt. I mean, it, just, it was a corrupt, evil, wicked city. Corinth was a, had a temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love. Really, it's the goddess of lust there. And every evening, a thousand prostitutes would come from the temple. They were temple prostitutes, and they would come and ply their trade in town. It was just, it was like the wild, wild west. That's what it was. And uh, it was a very corrupt city. And sometimes we look at Paul and we look at other apostles and we think, wow, I, I just, I couldn't do that. It's just too hard. It's too scary. I'd be afraid. And we often overlook the fact that Paul came to Corinth in weakness, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. He had been, he had been beat up. And that's how he came to Corinth. He arrived in weakness. He says to them in Corinthians, I came with fear and with trembling. And it seems that he may have been reluctant to speak to people in this city for fear that those in this corrupt city would attack him. You have to remember, he had already been attacked in places that were much more civil than Corinth. And now he was coming to Corinth. I mean, it would be almost like us going into Las Vegas, Nevada, into the strip of Las Vegas, Nevada, and proclaiming the gospel on the strip. Or going into areas of San Francisco and saying, people, listen to me. I've got good news to tell you about how you are living in sin and you can be saved. How do you think their message would be received? Well, you can imagine why Paul might have some fear and trembling. And that's how he came to Corinth. <clears throat> But the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, and this is what he said. In Acts 18, 9 through 10, it says, Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. Why did God send Paul to this city? Because God so loved Corinth that he gave his only begotten son. And we can say the same thing of Fremont or San Francisco or Las Vegas or any other place on the earth. Put, put your finger on any point in the map. God so loved. If God so loved Corinth, one of the most wicked cities on the earth. And he could say, I have many people in this town that I have, essentially he is saying, I elected them before the foundation of the, of the earth, before the foundation of the world. And I want you to preach the good news to them because I want to share heaven with these people. I want to forgive their sins. I want to cleanse them from all unrighteousness. And that's what he wants to do for you, if you don't know him, that is his purpose. That's why you're here. That's why you're still breathing. Because God so loves you that he wants to save your soul. Paul opened his mouth. He shared the good news with the people of Corinth. And guess what happened? Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue believed on the Lord and was saved with all his household. And many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. And it seems that there was a significant number of people who turned to the Lord. And, and Paul ended up staying 18 months in Corinth as he taught to them the scripture and the things of the Lord. So we're going to end today with just the first three verses. I'm going to read them to you of Corinthians and 1 Corinthians this was about two or three years later after Paul had left. He was now in Thessalonica. He wrote this letter. The Spirit of God moved him to write it to the uh, Corinthians. And it says this, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God 
and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul was called, it says here, called to be an apostle. You have been called. You have been, and God's calling was his enabling. What would you write? Don, called to be a teacher. Howard, called to be an elder. Matt, called to be a deacon. Your name, called to be what? What did God call you to be? That is your calling, and his calling is your enabling. Serve him in your calling. Fulfill your calling. The, the letter is written to the church of God, which is at Corinth. So I want to say this up front. Many read this phrase and go, okay, this letter is to the church at Corinth, end of story. It was only written to them. That letter contains, what the letter contains is just for the church located at Corinth. It's interesting to read, but it's not for us. This, the teaching that it contains applies only to their culture, only to their location, only to their situation. But that isn't true. It says, actually, if you read on in that, in that verse, it says, um, to the church which is at Corinth, later in that verse, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. He's saying, look, this letter is to you Corinthians, but it's to everybody else who calls on the name of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So everything this letter contains, although there are very specific things for this church, they also apply to Calvary Bible Chapel. They also apply to every other chapel or church um, that calls on the name of the Lord. This is for us. <clears throat> the church is young. It's only a couple of years old, full of problems and uh, full of difficulties. And there's all kind. And there's enough to tear the rest of my hair out as I read this letter. But the interesting thing is this: that he says to them, to the Corinthians, called to be saints. And and I want to just emphasize this at the very beginning of this letter. Because it's easy as we go into the book of Corinthians and we see the compounded problems in this church and you go, wow, are you kidding me? What were they thinking? But to remember this, that Paul is writing to them and he is calling them saints. Our position in Christ, when we trusted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, he did not say, you'll get there eventually. He said, you are saints, you are forgiven, you are holy, you are righteous. Why? Because we are in Christ. That is our position before God, and nothing can change that. That is who we are in Christ. Then he says, called to be saints. He said, well, wait a minute. If they are saints, how can they be called to be saints? And Paul is really saying this, look. In Christ, you are saints. But sometimes you don't live very saintly lives. Sometimes you don't live lives that really match your position in Christ. So here's your exalted position, and here's your practice somewhere. And the book of 1 Corinthians and the book of 2 Corinthians and really all the other epistles are really designed to say, look, here's who you are in Christ. Here's how you're currently living. Now, let's conform our practice to our position that we might truly live as saints. We are called to be saints, now live like that. When I think of the story of God reaching out to the Corinthians to save them, we see how far his grace reaches. It reaches to even this wicked and corrupt town. I am so grateful because I can read a book like this and say, well, if God can reach a people like this, then it's evident that he loves me too because I was just like them and he saved my soul. And so we see how God 
carefully move Paul to go to a certain location and to go to Corinthians. And as he moved into Macedonia, this is how it applies to us, this was the first footstep into what is now called Europe. And Europe opened up to the gospel. Most of America heard the gospel as a result of European believers, but not entirely so. And the gospel ultimately came to you. And here the Lord is just as gracious in 2017 as he was to the Corinthians in Paul's day. The good news is to be proclaimed by us to the ends of the earth. And it's being proclaimed today here at Calvary in Fremont, California to you. God has taken great pains to make sure you have heard the gospel and that you might believe in him and be saved. Let's just pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your love for the whole world and everyone in it. Thank you, Lord, there is not a single person that you have overlooked, that you paid the price for their sins on the cross in full. And we pray, Lord, that today, if there are some here who still have not simply trusted you as their own Lord and Savior, that today might be that day of salvation for them. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for your patience as I carried on this morning. The meeting is now over.